Welcome everyone to Dead Talk Live. I'm your host Viz. I want to welcome all of our viewers from around the world. Thank you for tuning in tonight. Hope you're having a pleasant Thursday. And uh, here we are again. Tomorrow kicks off uh, what I am calling our Black Summer Appreciation Month because we are going to have the who's who in season two of Black Summer. We kick it off tomorrow with uh, Anna, Rose's daughter, played by Zoe Marlette. She's going to be our guest right here at 9.30 p.m. You guys are not going to want to miss it. And the way I arranged our guests, uh, on July 6th, we are having a panel consisting of Jamie King, Justin Chu Carey, and Christine Lee, who respectively play Rose, Spears, and Son. I wanted those three together because I wanted to talk to them together. Uh, I wanted Zoe who plays uh, Rose's daughter, Anna, separately, but before the panel. And it luckily all worked out uh, the way I had envisioned it, because Anna, even though for the majority of the season, did not have a lot of dialogue, uh, we really got to know her. Uh, for those of you who have seen season two, when uh, Rose, Anna, go to that uh, ski lodge, and she just had some really powerful moments in those episodes. My favorite is uh, when she refuses to take a hot shower and she stands guard all night going out and investigating the very, very creepy sounds coming from that lodge. Uh, the door banging with the wind and her just screaming this silent but yet deafening scream into the glass. So that's why I wanted to have Zoe by herself. And she's going to be our guest tomorrow. And on Tuesday, we're having the panel of Jamie King, Justin Chu, Carrie, and Son. So a lot of good stuff in store. You guys are going to want to tune in and definitely not miss it. July, uh, which today is July 1st, so happy July to everybody, is going to be, it's jam-packed with guests, uh, not only from Black Summer, but all over the horror genre. So we are going to have uh, a lot of guests in this next month, and you guys are not going to want to miss it. Check us out on the web if you want to see the full list. And it's actually not even the full list. Uh, you know, uh, as the days go on, I'm going to be adding more and more people that are already scheduled for the latter half of July. So you guys are definitely going to want to see that. So anyway, want to welcome some of you. Christopher is joining us. Uh, Colette is with us all the way from England. Uh, Colette is a night owl. It's like what? It's uh, like 3 a.m. in the morning. But don't worry, Colette. I'm with you too. I'm a night owl as well. The nighttime is my daytime. And we have a lot of insomniacs here. I uh, want to welcome Alpha who's joining us as well. A big thank you to all our moderators across all the platforms that we stream to. Uh, thank you guys for doing the work that you do. And hey, Black Summer Official just joined us. Black Summer, we were just talking about your guests that we are going to have starting tomorrow with uh, Zoe Marlette, that awesome panel we're having on Tuesday with Jamie King, Justin Chu Carey, Christine Lee, and as well as uh, the Who's Who in Season 2 of Black Summer throughout the entire month of July. So it's good to have you join us, Black Summer, the official Black Summer account on Instagram. It's a pleasure to have you with us. 
So let's just go ahead and get to uh, the latest news that's broken in the last 24 hours. Um, not a whole bunch of stuff, but as always, uh, there's always stuff that's to, uh, out there to write about. So uh, the CFF 2021 just pretty much wrapped up. It's a film festival, the Chattanooga Film Festival just wrapped up and there were some pretty good horror movies that apparently premiered there now due to the pandemic the chattanooga film festival festival successful successfully organized one of the first ever virtual film festivals last year in 2020 and proved that if a small inde- uh, independent festival can go virtual then the larger festivals should be able to do so as well CFF has announced that they already are planning a hybrid festival in 2022 so that people who might not be able to attend in person due to disability, finances, or other reasons can also have access to the festival. The sense of community created through the CFF's virtual festivals have been awe-inspiring, and as a disabled writer, I am extremely grateful to everyone at CFF for another amazing virtual festival experience that was accessible to people like me. Uh, So this year's festival included access to over 90 films on demand, both both features and short films, as well as live events, secret screenings, and filmmakers Q&A. Also included was access to the official CFF Discord channel, where filmmakers and film fans hung out and watched movies together and discussed their favorites from the festival. Now that sounds like a lot of fun. Now that the festival has ended, I wanted to highlight some of the movies I thought were most memorable from the festival itself. There were so many fantastic genre and genre adjacent films to choose from at this year's Chattanooga Film Festival. In no particular order, here are the five that were my favorites from 2021 and release information when where available. Now first is, let's see, uh, scenes from an empty church. There have been so many films made in the past year that were inspired by COVID, the COVID pandemic that they have almost created a new subgenre. With that being said, there hasn't been a film that so uniquely and perfectly captured the way so many of us have felt while experiencing the pandemic, like scenes from an empty church. Directed by Unar Tukal uh, from Catfight, the story centers around two priests, Father Andrew, played by Kevin Corrigan, and Father James, played by Thomas J. Ryan, who opened the doors of their church to various people seeking salvation during the pandemic. The priests are still trying to figure out how to cope with lockdown in New York City, but that doesn't prevent them from trying to help others who may be feeling especially lost at this time. Now, as the story unfolds, The priests engage in intimate, honest conversations with parishioners and others about things like love, life, and what happens when we die. You don't have to be a religious person to appreciate this film. 
Scenes from an Empty Church explores things we've all thought about while adjusting to life during a pandemic. Not only does this movie feature some truly outstanding personal performances, you'll be thinking about it for a long time afterwards. MPI Media Group is releasing scenes from an empty church in theaters and video on demand tomorrow, July 2nd. So that was pretty quick. Now the next movie is We're All Going to the World's Fair. Directed by Jane Showbronze, uh, uh, We're All Going to the World's Fair follows a lonely teenager named Casey played by Anna Cobb, whose only social interactions are on the internet. And just to stop right there, uh, that's actually the norm for teenagers today. Uh, I have three teenagers myself. And, you know, for some of us old-timers watching out there where we didn't have the internet while we were teenagers, yeah, that is completely changed. Social interaction now is all done from uh, your kid's bedroom. Now, while watching videos, Casey stumbles on something called the World's Fair Challenge, an online role-playing horror game which she becomes completely immersed in. After taking the challenge, uh, sorry, after taking the challenge by performing a ritual, Casey begins documenting herself on video. Anna Cobb is absolutely mesmerizing and slightly terrifying as the innocent, isolated, and obviously unhappy Casey. A man who calls himself JLB, played by Michael J. Rogers, reaches out and wants to befriend her. That's always a bad sign. As she spirals into an emotionally dark place, Casey is unsure of the stranger's intentions but she is convinced she is undergoing physical and mental changes because she took the challenge. Now, we're all going to the World's Fair is relatable no matter your age. We've all felt alone at some point. The film is intriguing for its novel exploration of themes like mental health, loneliness, and the inward search for identity we all experience at some time in our lives. Now, I was excited to have the opportunity to talk with writer-director Jane Schoenbraun about the movie when Chattanooga Film Festival asked me to moderate a Q&A for the film. You can watch the Q&A here. We're all going to the World's Fair. will be available on HBO Max early next year. Now, the third movie on the list is The Old Ways, Written by Marcos Gabriel and directed by Christopher Allender, The Old Ways is a fresh take on the possession subgenre. All right. Using exquisite cinematography, this film tells a story of Christina, uh, a burned out journalist who travels to her ancestral home in Veracruz, Mexico, to investigate a story and is kidnapped by locals who think she has a demon inside of her. Uh, Sal Lopez stars as Javi, a man who uh, kidnapped Christina and is working with a bruja by performing various, sometimes painful rituals in an effort to expel the demon 
they believe is inside her. Now, if memory serves me correct, a bruja in Mexican culture is sort of like a witch. I could be wrong about that, but I, I think I'm pretty accurate. Now, Andrea Cortez plays Christina's cousin Miranda, who wants to help her, but also wants to know why Christina has not had much contact with her family. The Old Ways features wicked practical effects and uses body horror as a way to represent Christina's inner demons and her refusal to deal with them. Uh, Brigitte Kali Canales gives a phenomenal performance as the tortured Christina. Seek this one out when it becomes available. Uh, date unknown. Now, fourth movie, My Heart Can't Beat Unless You Tell It To. That's a long title. Written and directed by Jonathan Guartas in his directorial debut, My Heart Can't Beat Unless You Tell It To, is a heartbreaking story of one family's attempt to uh, cope with chronic illness. Patrick Fouquet from Almost Famous uh, plays Dwight, who lives with his sister Jessie, played by Ingrid Sophie Schramm, and their sickly younger brother Thomas, played by Owen Campbell. Thomas suffers from a painful, unknown illness and only finds release when he drinks human blood. Okay. Thomas's sickness requires them uh, for their blood. Dwight realizes he can no longer live with this horrible arrangement, and he desperately wants to find a way out. Jesse has a closer relationship with Thomas and acts in a maternal role in the family, and this only drives Dwight away further emotionally. Powerful performances from the entire cast and the captivating use of vampirism as a metaphor for chronic illness and the toll it takes on families makes this a must-see horror movie. Now, that's, I mean, that sounds pretty damn interesting. I mean, we've seen it before, the unquenchable thirst for human blood, but you take that and you put it into a family setting and you kind of have something new. Now, I had the pleasure of talking with director Jonathan Cuertas and star Owen Campbell about the film, you could read our interview here. The movie is in theaters and video on demand now. So if you're looking for something to watch, I'll tell you the title one more time because it's long. My heart can't beat unless you tell it to. Now, last but not least is a movie called Blood Conscious. Unfortunately, mass shootings have become far too common in America. Writer-director Timothy Covell's debut feature film, Blood Conscious, combines the horror of a mass shooting with demonic possession for a compelling film that is driven by social commentary. A black family that includes Kevin, his older sister Brittany, and her fiancé Tony go to their parents' cabin by the lake for vacation but are met by a gruesome scene. Their parents and their neighbors have been massacred by a white shooter known only as The Stranger, 
who claims that they were really demons. The stranger thinks Kevin and his sister and her fiancé are demons as well. Why not? <laughs> and when he tries to shoot them, they manage to overpower him, tie him up, and lock him in the basement. Now, when a, a woman named Margie showed up, claiming to have been hiding from the shooter in the woods for hours, her story doesn't quite add up after Kevin asks her what she sees hiding. She makes several racist comments. At this point, Kevin tries to convince Brittany and Tony that maybe they should consider talking to the stranger to try and figure out what's really going on. Blood Conscious features an excellent cast and keeps you guessing while on the edge of your seat. Blood Conscious will be released by Dark Sky Films in theaters and video on demand this summer. So, you know what? Those are all good. Two out of the five, of course, have demonic possession. And at the end of today's show, we are going to be discussing today the real-life inspiration of uh, The Exorcist. Uh, for those of you that don't know, William Peter Blatty, who wrote the book, did base it on real events that started in Maryland, ended in St. Louis in the year 1949. It's one of the most famous uh, stories out there, has been the inspiration of a ton of movies, the biggest one, of course, being The Exorcist. But it didn't just stop with The Exorcist. A lot of movies, uh, some actually followed the story pretty well, the real story. The Exorcist, of course, took its own liberties to make it a lot more scarier. And not to say that the real story is not scary in itself, because it really, really is. So anyway, moving on, we've talked about this show, uh, Fear Street, uh, the first one, 1994. Uh, Netflix horror takes a uh, R.L. Stein to the next level. Now, we've talked about this in detail, you know, previously. It's a trilogy all being released this month on Netflix. Uh, I believe it's Fear Street 1994. The, another one is 1666. And I think the third one is, what, 1974? I'm just scanning quickly to see what the year of the third one is. Do you guys remember? I know that it's 1994, 1666, and uh, damn it, I'm forgetting the third year, but let's go ahead and watch the trailer again. Dude, what the hell? This is exactly why you have no friends. Look, some gal killed a bunch of people at the mall last night. Holy shit. Another shady side tragedy. Fits the narrative, right? Sarah fears that. Christ, not you too. There's no angry dead witch. The only thing that made him go crazy is this town. The dude was wearing a Halloween skull mask. How is that not fun? Guys, I think there's someone in the woods. one night and dead people are trying to kill us. Maybe we are doomed. Oh, 
was so sexy, but so crazy. Normal bitches don't bleed black blood. How do we not die? I'm looking at you, witch nerd. You can't stop it. That is tomorrow. All right. Uh, for some of you guys, it already is July 2nd. Now, we are going to be having a star from this movie that I'm going to announce here in the next week or so. It's confirmed, uh, but I'm going to wait, hold off announcing it till we get closer to the date. Uh, but yeah, we're going to have someone from the movies on our show. You're not going to want to miss that as well. Uh, so let's see. What else do we have for you? Um, Army of Darkness. For some reason, people just are wrapped up in this 1992 movie uh you know we've discussed this in length so we're going to skip this for now now the faculty star looks back on horror films initial disappointment how many of you guys have seen the faculty uh pretty good i liked it now directed by robert rodriguez and starring an ensemble and up and coming stars and 1998's The Faculty has earned a passionate following over the years, but it was largely a financial disappointment at the time, with star Jordana Brewster recently reflecting on her surprise at its failure to connect with the audience, uh, though also detailed how much she appreciated the opportunity. Thanks in large part to the success of Scream in 96, the horror genre saw a massive surge in teen-oriented thrillers, with the faculty poised to become a breakout hit. Yet Brewster notes that the timing of the release might have ultimately been what prevented the film from earning major numbers. With the faculty, it was like, you guys, this is going to be huge. Look at all these successes around us. And like, she's all that and scream. Brewster shared with Collider, and it was also Dimension, which was doing really well, that studio, and then Tommy Hilfiger was doing our campaign, so we all thought it was going to be huge, and then it turned out it wasn't so huge. We thought it was going to be massive, I think it was a Christmas opening, and just not so big. Joining Brewster in the film were Elijah Wood, Josh Harnett, and Usher as well as Robert Patrick, John Stewart, and Salma Hayek. Potentially what also might not have resonated with audiences is that as compared to the more straightforward thrillers that came in the years before it, the faculty was more of a sci-fi creature feature, which might not have been what audiences were looking for at the time. Being on set, it was my first time shooting a movie ever, but also we were in Austin, Texas, and working with Robert Rodriguez and Salma Hayek was in it. John Stewart, uh, yeah, John Stewart would test his material on us, his comedic routine. Brewster explained, it was so much fun. I loved working on that film. The film focuses on a school whose staff began acting bizarre and aggressive towards the students, only for the student body to realize the staff are being controlled by parasites from another world. 
The faculty currently sits at 54 positive, 54% positive reviews on Rotten Tomatoes and went on to take in $40.3 million worldwide, which in itself is really not that bad. Now, Brewster can currently be seen in F9, which is in theaters now. Uh, have any of you guys seen The Faculty? Uh, Lisa has. Um, Khaleesi, 1978 is the other uh, Fear Street uh, title. Thank you, Khaleesi. Uh, yeah, okay, the story of uh, faculty members or like Invasion of the Body Snatchers, people in general being taken over by alien uh, parasites is not new or unique, but the way they worked it out in the faculty, it was a, it was an enjoyable movie. I enjoyed it. Uh, Jason says that he saw it many years ago. It might be worth revisiting. I might rewatch it again just to refresh in the memory. Uh, Collect says I think I've seen it, but I don't remember what happened. It, me too. I mean, I've I remember the general story. It's been a long time since I've seen it, so it may be worth rewatching again. That probably goes true for all of us. All right, 1980s throwback horror movie, Let Us In, dives deep into a creepy urban legend. It's got a little bit of E.T., a little bit of Goonies, with Saw's Tobin Bell thrown in for fun. Now, films like E.T., Explorers, The Goonies, who doesn't love The Goonies? I love The Goonies. Uh, I love that film. Not a horror in any way, but growing up, I was a big Goonies fan. I still am a big Goonies fan. Anyway, like E.T. Explorers and the Goonies helped make the 1980s into the golden age of tween sci-fi and adventure, while Netflix's Stranger Things and the Project Power reached back to that era of science fiction, the last few decades haven't seen many 80s-style tales of precocious, science-loving kids going on adventures or communicating with aliens. Uh, and I've said this a couple of days ago, like the movie The Jin that came out recently, set in 1989, there's no reason why the story needs to be set in 1989. Nothing in the story uh, requires it to be in the 80s. But you see this a lot with new movies coming out. They are set there... They're taking it back to the 80s. You know, I personally like that. Now, Let Us In, directed and co-written by Craig Moss, tries to reintroduce the subgenre to a new generation of kids while adding pure horror spin. Through its intrepid heroine, Emily, and some monsters based on the urban legend of the black-eyed children. Though Moss's performance is impressive, it isn't enough to make this awkward film the next cult classic. Uh, Let Us In uh, lead Emily is a 12-year-old girl who lives in a small town where kids have been disappearing without a trace. She's an outcast after a mysterious incident where her best friend Rachel died. Now she gets bullied by the popular girls and spends her free time building an extraterrestrial communicator with her friend Christopher. One night, while home alone, she's visited by strange people with completely black eyes who ask her to let them in. Word of advice, 
always say no. The legend of the black-eyed children says that on Halloween or other spooky nights, kids between the ages of 8 and 16 will come up to someone's house or car, knock on the door, and insist on being let in. These kids will seem completely normal, except for the completely black eyes and the overwhelming sense of dread that comes over anyone who encounters them. Now, speaking for myself, black eyes and overwhelming sense of dread is more than enough that I need to shut the door on their, on their ass. A piece of advice, if the black-eyed children come to your door, don't let them in. Emily is let us in the bright spot. Moss gives a natural, mature performance, and in spite of all the film's faults, it's a greater star vehicle for her. Director Craig Moss is her dad, so the role may have been designed for her, but she lives up to it. Single-handedly propelling the movie along with plot falters, in addition to her great performance, the film plays up the town outcast whose only friends are other outcasts. Trope to the point where it's impossible not to side with Emily and her allies. Unfortunately, besides Emily and to some extent her friend Christopher, the rest of the characters are one-dimensional. That could be a plus for a kid-centric story, given the mandate to get the adults out of the picture so the kids can adventure, but Lettison makes the adults oblivious to the point of ignorance and doesn't give the film's other kids any more depth. Sadie Stanley and Sienna Ogdong, playing Christopher's older sister and the local Queen Bee, respectively are good enough to overcome the lack of characterization, but they only appear in two or three scenes apiece. Now, it also doesn't help that the characters don't speak like today's preteens. Emily and Christopher sound natural enough when they're speaking like pure, precocious nerds, but all the other kids sound like Urban Dictionary Mad Libs. <laughs> In the first scene, a kid says, we're gonna skirt. And the moment's cringy enough to distract from the rising tension, same goes for a scene when Emily tells her grandmother that the cookies they made are so on fleek. And I have no idea what that means. Christopher is the only kid who doesn't lapse into slang, instead sounding like a classic precocious kid. It's a reasonable question whether the entire film would have worked better without trying to make the kids sound so Gen Z. Lettison also does remarkably little with its source material. The black-eyed kids aren't as central to the plot as they should be in what initially appears to be a horror film. They're a B-plot for at least half of the film, pushed aside except for scenes where they attack kids. The violence is blood-free but surprisingly visceral with the monsters breaking one child's leg and punching another in the face. These sequences are both the most entertaining parts of Let Us In, and possibly too intense for the film's intended young audience. 
Also, while the legend of the black-eyed children has them varying in age, in the film, they all look like teenagers, which feels less menacing than an eight-year-old with blacked-out eyes standing silently on your porch. Uh, Lisa writes, Viz puts a sign at the door, no extraterrestrials allowed. That more likely would be like, no black-eyed, freaky-ass kids allowed. <laughs> that would be more likely. Uh, just reading through your guys' comments. All right, let's look at the time, of course. It's already 30 minutes in. So, uh, American Horror Story Theory... Rubber Woman in the new poster for the spin-off show. Remember, American Horror Stories is the spin-off to American Horror Story, where each episode is going to be a separate story onto itself. They are theorizing here that the Rubber Woman in the uh, artwork that was released is Violet. Given Violet's history on an American Horror Story murder house, she seems like a prime candidate for American Horror Story's mysterious new rubber woman. American Horror Story fans eagerly prepare for Ryan's Murphy spinoff series, American Horror Stories. Following in its predecessor's footsteps, American Horror Stories delivers an anthology-style show with a twist, with each episode featuring a unique story, while Murphy promises various horror, myths, legends, and lore, the actual plot is still vague. However, the trailer features a familiar character and new female version that teases a possible connection to Murder House. Given what's known about the Rubber Man, the identity of AHS's Rubber Woman seems to point in Violet's direction. So... You know, do they actually have the trailer? Of course not. I don't know. I don't think I've seen an actual trailer for American Horror Stories. Now, we have seen some little short teasers, but I don't know if that's what they're referring to. <laughs> uh, Khaleesi writes, loved her in The Nun as well. She's a great actress. Now. Let's see, going back to the 80s, we we sort of just did that. 10 horror movies that were dangerous or difficult to make. Now, you know, we have seen this in uh, various different forms, cursed films, just movies where uh, just a whole bunch of bad stuff happens on the set. Number 10 is Carolyn. Number 9 is Psycho. Why was Psycho hard? Working with the legendary Alfred Hitchcock always comes with its own ups and downs, but even the prolific director had problems getting this iconic film off the ground. While Hitchcock is already known for putting Janet Leigh through some less than professional scares and the inspiration for the film's book was a real-life serial killer, which would be Ed Gein, it was a challenge just to get the film released. As per IndieWire, Hitchcock had to bend over backwards for approval, put his own finances at risk, and more just to get Paramount to release it. That's not even mentioning the lengths to which everyone involved with the production had to go to to get it approved by the censors. You guys got to remember, this is back in the 60s. 
Uh, eight is The Possession. Now, The Possession is a movie starring J.D. Morgan. Back in 2011, it's a spin on the Dybbuk Box uh, real story. Uh, J.D. plays the father of a girl who comes across this box. Of course, the box is possessed with a demon. Uh, so, what problems do they have on this set? For whatever reason, films involving demonic possession often seem to endure production cycles riddled with strange anomalies. Aptly named, The Possession was plagued by several dangerous instances and occurrences, many of which were blamed on supernatural forces. Oh, wow. So, we actually do have an actual curse set. According to The Hollywood Reporter, the stereotypical cold chills were felt. Lights began exploding randomly, but the most catastrophic event happened after filming was finished. The prop house containing all of the film's props and set pieces, including the film's infamous Dybbuk box, in the movie it's not called the Dybbuk box, mysteriously caught fire and was burned to the ground. I did not know that. The Shining, uh, like the previously mentioned horror uh, Hitchcock, working with the iconic and infamous Stanley Kubrick, came with its own share of struggles, along with the difficulties creating the twisted realm of the Overlook Hotel. The director himself put his cast and crew through the ringer. Kubrick is known for his alternative methods and avant-garde style, but he's also known for his brutal attention to detail and treatment of his actors. As per People, Scatman Crothers and Shelley Duvall were borderline abused during the process and Duvall's treatment during over 120 different takes were so severe that she began losing her hair. Damn. Texas Chainsaw Massacre for of what made the Texas Chainsaw Massacre so terrifying was the grungy, exploitive nature of the film's look. The movie is brutal, to say the least, but the only thing more gut-wrenching than the Sawyer family's appetite for human flesh was, as per Mental Floss, the conditions the cast and crew had to deal with during the filming. The film was made on a shoestring budget, with long hours and grueling weather conditions in the middle of a Texas summer. Interior shots supposedly went up to 115 degrees, and the smell of the raw meat and bones was so putrid that the cast members had to leave the set between takes to breathe and vomit. Damn! It must have been a nightmare for Gunnar Hansen who had to endure these conditions while wearing what would become one of Texas Chainsaw Massacre's most iconic masks. Damn. I mean, okay, you know, this is going back to the 70s. Uh, Low-budget film. Of course, it's a classic now. Uh, trying to make this film on a very low budget in the middle of a Texas summer. And, uh, yeah, those were not prop pieces. I guess they actually used real rotting meat in the place of uh, what was supposed to be human, uh, you know, innards. Well, of course they used, you know, 
uh, uh, animal meat, hoping they didn't use human meat. No, just kidding. But no, those weren't props. Those were actual real decaying meat. Now, the original Evil Dead, Sam Raimi's Evil Dead, is easily one of the most terrifying horror films of the 80s, and that's largely thanks to its practical effects and horror scenes, but making those sequences was not easy by any means. Even Sam Raimi passed out from exhaustion during production, but that's only one of the lighter notes during filming. All the uh, ammunition and drugs seen in the movie are real. The eyes of the deadites were made out of glass contact lenses, and even the cabin where the film was shot had its own horrifying history. Raimi and the cast were certainly dedicated to the project, to say the least. Poltergeist, uh... We all know this is very famous, the tragedies that happened on the poltergeist. The Exorcist, often considered to be one of the scariest films ever made. It would be a bigger surprise if The Exorcist didn't have some form of sinister actions going on behind the scenes. Of course, as mentioned by RJCV, there are reports of viewers having adverse reactions to the infamous film. That's very well known. But like the previously mentioned poltergeist, the true scares happened during production. As recalled by iNews, he said, uh, he said yeah, that the set was cursed by reputation from many involved, but that the biggest deterrent was the infamous fire that nearly destroyed the entire set. Mysteriously enough, the only room that remained untouched was Reagan McNeil's bedroom. Ooh. Number two, The Crow. That's probably the biggest tragedy right there. We lost Brandon Lee during the filming of The Crow. And number one, The Twilight Zone, the movie. Uh, the movie was not only one of the scariest anthologies uh, series ever made, but its production featured one of the most devastating film accidents in horror history. As relayed by Slate during filming a fatal helicopter accident, claimed the lives of Vic Morrow and two child actors. On the last day of filming, the pilot flying the helicopter during the segment based on a quality of mercy lost control of the craft, crashed into the three performers, the production team naturally faced the fallout and it ultimately changed the way movies were filmed, horror or otherwise. And that is a big tragedy right there. Another well-known one that happened during the Twilight Zone. Uh, Colette writes, I can't do bad smells. I'd be heaving. Well, you know, uh, they're troopers. Those, you know, they were doing the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Really, like they said, on a very low to no budget in the middle of Texas, of a Texas summer. Uh, but, you know, if you were to ask them now, those who are still around, I'm sure they don't regret it, considering its place in history. So, uh, let's see, Edgar Wright's horror movie, Last Night in Soho, we've already discussed this, uh, False Positive, we've already talked about this movie, Truth About Fertility Treatments, this movie's on Hulu, 
Uh, as millions of women know, fertility treatments can be a nightmare. The pain, painful, sterile procedures, the loss of control over your own body, the never-ending blood tests and experiments and strange medications that take over your refrigerator shelves and your life. If so many women have endured this terror in real life, do we really need an exaggerated Hollywood version for our experiences? After seeing the new Hulu movie, Hulu movie, Hulu movie, False Positive, and other recent screen depictions, I would say it depends on who's watching. Like so many others, I did not experience the knocked up version of pregnancy in real life. It took a lot more than one night of drunk sex with Seth Rogen to do the job. Instead of being rom-com cute, my story of becoming a parent was heartbreaking, tedious, and dominated by scenes of exhausted woman, women packed into the fertility clinic waiting room. That might not sound so cinematic, but when you're going through it, the inner turmoil can feel as dramatic and dire as any war story. And audience, audiences love a good war story, right? So why not ours? So there you guys have it on the uh, false positive. Now, last thing on the list, Silent Night director Stephen C. Miller returns to horror with a new movie, Margot. Uh, director Stephen Miller from uh, Silent Night, First Kill, and Escape Plan 2 is headed back to the horror genre with his next movie titled Margot, uh, which was announced by Deadline this afternoon. Madison Pettis... Uh, Vanessa Morgan, Richard Harmon have signed on to star in the movie, which will begin production this summer. In the film, a group of college friends rent a smart house for a weekend of partying. However, they slowly start to realize that Margot, the house super advanced AI system, has a sinister designs for them. And it was only a matter of time before a horror movie was made from smart house technology. You know, for those that don't know smart houses, that's where your thermostat, your lighting, is all controlled by a central computer that you can monitor. You can turn on the lights from anywhere in the world and whatnot. I'm actually surprised that it took him that long to do a horror movie about it. So anyway, that's what we have in uh, regards to the latest horror news and headlines out there. Let's talk about the inspiration behind The Exorcist. Now, this is a fascinating story. Uh, there are, there's a movie and a documentary. If you really want to know the true story behind what happened to this boy who was demonic, who was possessed by a demon, the movie is a is it's kind of cheesy but it's a very accurate portrayal mostly of what happened and it's called possession it was made in 2000 and it stars x x james bond timothy dalton uh i'm not asking you to watch this movie because it's great or amazing uh if you want to see a story that's probably very close to what happened in real life, I would say possession is it. Now, secondly, 
you have a documentary on the uh, Discovery Discovery Network. It's, it's available on Discovery Plus. It was originally released on the Travel Channel, which is part of the Discovery family. And it's called The Exorcism of Roland Doe. It's a 90-minute documentary that goes through the story of what happened. The story of this exorcism starts in Maryland. That's why the exorcist takes place in Washington, D.C., very close to Maryland. In fact, it's literally right next door. But anyway, it starts in Maryland. A boy uh, started showing, started acting strangely. Now, if you go a little further back, this boy had a uh, close relationship with, I believe it was his aunt or whatever. They were, she was very big on spirit boards, Ouija boards, and the occult. She wanted to expose the boy to the world of the dead, the spirits. Well, what happened was this boy, whose real name has never been officially released. Now, there's a lot of speculation as to what this kid's name is. I'm not going to read what the speculation is. He was a kid when this happened. I want to respect his privacy. And at the end of the day, we don't even know if the name is accurate. Uh, but The Exorcism of Roland Doe, which is what the documentary is called, is going to give you a great insight to what caught the attention of so many people. One of those people was William Peter Blatty, who wrote The Exorcist. Uh, so this all started in Maryland. This aunt of this boy got him into spirit boards, the occult. She passed away, and very soon after she passed away, the boy just, his personality started to change. At first, they thought it was just a kid acting out until the events that started to unfold became truly unexplainable. They ended up traveling from Maryland to St. Louis, um, the reason why they went to St. Louis is because the episodes that he was having in Maryland, and this is where parts of The Exorcist are sort of true, like uh, when Reagan is in her bed and you sort of see uh, like the writing on her body, help me. Uh, this supposedly happened in real life as well in this, to this poor boy. Anyway, those messages led them to go to St. Louis. They went to St. Louis, and it was there, finally, that they came across uh, priests that were willing to help them. Now, this is not an exorcism that was one and done in a night, just like the movie. No. This lasted a long, long time. Now, the person who was picked to do the exorcist, the priest, he insisted that it would be, he had never done an exorcism before, and he insisted that the whole thing, that an accurate record be kept of every event that happened during the exorcism. Uh, so, just some facts. Uh, it began in Maryland, like I said. Uh, the aunt was a spiritualist. 
The, the first occurrence is recorded on January 15th, 1949. Like I said, they were led to um, St. Louis. And I want to get to my notes here uh, because the exorcism, when they were in St. Louis, started at the boy's house. It ended up being at three different locations. They went to, they started at the boy's house. It was not going well there. And then he moved to a hospital. And then where it finally uh, ended was in like a monastery. It was uh, a hospital for the, uh, for basically the, like the criminally insane, but it was run by the church. Now, speculation rose whether or not these incidences were uh, connected to Ronald's obsessions to the Ouija board, which came again from his aunt's. From his aunt, he spoke in other languages, uh, languages that he had no way of knowing. Uh, uh, more similarities to the movie, the bed would shake constantly while he was laying on it. Supposedly, the bed levitated on its own. Not just an inch off the ground. I mean, it really levitated off the ground. The boy levitated off the ground as well. Uh, he was, of course, given a full medical exam. There was nothing physically wrong with him. The doctors could never find anything physically wrong with him. But the attacks grew worse and worse and worse. The parents were absolutely terrified of their child. Um, they knew they were dealing with something that was pure evil. Now, many have speculated that he was actually possessed by the devil himself. I don't personally believe that. But during the exorcism, when the priest would ask the name of the demon, uh, he would say that, it's not just one, it's a legion of demons inside of him. It was, he was possessed by more than one demonic entity. So, uh, in St. Louis, they went to St. James Catholic Church begging for help. Uh, after basically them being turned down left and right by the church, is when they finally did come across a priest and the priest did see stuff you cannot explain he went to the archdiocese uh the church at that time did not want to be uh, associated with what they considered medieval practices of the catholic church but quietly they did approve the exorcism as long it was done by the priest that requested it that it was to be kept under wraps uh there was it was not to be talked about mentioned or anything and the only record that exists is that diary you know because the the priest that performed the exorcism insisted that there would be an accurate record of everything that happened and it mentions the levitation it mentions the speaking in tongues and languages that the boy had no knowledge of ever hearing before uh, the strange uh, scars, writings that would randomly appear and disappear on his body, just like the movie. 
In the movie, it happened pretty much that one time while Reagan was sleeping. This happened a lot with this boy. Uh, it led them to St. Louis. Why did the demon lead them to St. Louis? I have no idea. Was it a positive force inside him that was telling the parents where to go for help? No idea. Finally, after, I think, you know, at least three months, uh, I'm thinking of this exorcism going on, they were able to vanquish it, to get rid of it. And the boy went on and is still alive and he's leading a normal life. He's married with children. He has not had an incident since. And to date, it is the most famous possession story in the world uh, as far as it getting the most attention. So like we talked about, it, a lot of movies were based on this, The Exorcist being the most notable. Uh, if you guys really want to find out more about it, watch the movie Possession with Timothy Dalton. It's not a masterpiece by any means. But it's the most accurate telling of the story in regards to movies. Uh, and go ahead and watch uh, that documentary. You know, the, possession, the Possession of Roland Doe. It has a lot of great interviews with family members of the boy, priest, the church, and whatnot. So I highly recommend if you really want to find... It's a fascinating story. If you really do want to find out what went on watch that Discovery Channel documentary. Uh, Colette writes, the entity is supposed to uh, have happened as well. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot of stuff. A lot of stuff revolving around this real story. Ruben writes, this is sad. What that boy went through is just hell. I mean, literally, he was in hell. And at the end, though, the demons were vanquished and they never bothered that boy again. So it does have a happy ending. Anyway, guys, we're out of time for tonight. Thank you so much for tuning in. Make sure to tune in tomorrow. Our special guest is going to be Zoe Marlette, who played Rose's daughter in Black Summer. Anna, she will be our guest tomorrow night. Very excited about that. The start time is going to be 9.30 p.m. Eastern. You're not going to want to miss that and all the other interviews coming up. Stay safe. A weekend's coming up. And until tomorrow night, guys, remember... Always stay walking. Good night.